0: Welcome to Palm Peeps, everyone. We have some exciting episodes coming your way with our ongoing Top Consult episodes, which have been recently about pleural disease. We have some great collaborations upcoming with American Thoracic Society or ATS. And of course, we have our Fellows Case Files. Fur, are you ready for another great case today?
1: Always. As you know, these are my favorite episodes. We continue our journey around the country today to great pulmonary and critical care training programs, and this week we're headed to Indiana. So if you all are listening and you have an interesting case from pulmonary clinic, the inpatient wards, the ICU, and you want to come on to discuss this, definitely let us know. But let's dive into this case. We'll meet our guests for today and start hearing about this patient. So first, we have Parth Sapsani. Parth is currently an internal medicine resident at Indiana University School of Medicine. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and his MD from the University of Illinois College of Medicine. He's also going to be the chief resident at the VA next year. Congrats, Parth. it will be fun.
2: And welcome to Palm Peeps. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm quite excited to be here and share our case.
0: Yeah, we're so excited to have you, Parth. Next, we have Dr. Maria Swar. Uh, Maria is a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Indiana University School of Medicine, and she's additionally um, pursuing her MPH. Maria, I'm not sure how you have time to do that all, but she uh, received her MD from Indiana University, and she completed her internal medicine residency at St. Louis University, where she was also a chief resident. Her work focuses in global health to improve care for sepsis patients in low resource settings. And it's such a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Today,
3: Maria. Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And finally, we're joined by Laura Hinkle. Laura is an Indiana University diehard. Looks like you've been there since you got your MD residency fellowship. She's now an assistant professor. And she's the Associate Program Director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship and actually taking over on July 1 as the Program Director. So good luck. I'm sure your email is about to explode (laughs) from an already very large size. Uh, She's a dedicated educator and is the key clinical educator for pulmonary and critical care and the Director of the Clinical Transitions Curriculum uh, at Indiana. Additionally, she is working on a master's degree in education through the University of Cincinnati. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Laura.
4: Thank you so much for inviting me and the rest of the crew here. I have really enjoyed listening to the poem Peeps Case Files and excited to be part of one of these episodes.
0: Oh, thank you so much, and we're, we couldn't be uh, more excited to have uh, the three of you on today. And before we get um, into our case, uh, we do our general disclaimer. So just as a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views we express today do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our restric- respective employers. The case we will present today is um, definitely HIPAA compliant, and some details may have been changed to protect the privacy of our patient. I think with that, we're ready to go. So Parth, why don't we get started in- and tell us about the patient that we're meeting.
2: All right, uh, so this happens to be one of the patients who I admitted during uh, one of my ICU nights at our university hospital. So he is a 62 year old male who presented from an outside hospital initially. Uh, he, he presented at the hospital with fatigue and lethargy, which was worsening over the past one week. And three days prior to the uh, presentation at the other hospital, he started having increasing dyspnea and weakness and almost had a fall. And the fall was one of the primary concerns that led the family to be more uh, worried about what's going on and ended up presenting or bringing him to the hospital. And while en route, interestingly, uh, while they were coming to the hospital, he started becoming more... Uh, dysarthric and had the slurring of speech eventually. So um, interestingly, in addition to all these things going on, the family was quite um, anchoring on the fact that he had eaten some expired peanut butter, which was uh, recalled at that time for (laughs) salmonella. And the family was uh, uh, pretty concerned that this could have been the whole reason why he was acting or the way he was uh, presenting. And kind of to summarize his review of systems, so it was pretty much significant for fevers, chills, fatigue, uh, some progressive dyspnea, some mild lower extremity edema in the ankles. You also had some diarrhea, some myalgias, and the new worsening, acute worsening of this uh, slurred speech that while coming to the outside hospital. And so that's how we initially presented at the other hospital, and that's kind of the summary of this patient.
0: That's so great, Par. Thank you for that detailed summary for us, and definitely some some symptoms that are concerning and I think really interesting history as you mentioned with recalled food and expired peanut butter. Parth, have you ever had anything like that before?
1: Yeah, I have. Uh, Parth, I love that you said you know um, the family was anchoring. You know, i, I mean, a big part of diagnostic reasoning. in The ICU is confronting the biases that come in. This is a huge piece of history. This could be the linchpin of history. At the same time, we need to confront that once you have a unique piece of history like that, you may have anchoring bias. So we're going to consider it, but you know we don't want to... Um Uh, to hone in on it and let it obscure from other diagnoses that a a patient could have. That being said, it is really important when you have stuff like this to know what resources you have in the ICU, and they're basically unlimited, right, when you have a very sick patient. So you can call your local department of health, you can call your local infectious control at the hospital first, who can often often give you some guidance. You can also call the CDC. I recently had a patient where we're concerned about botulism, and the CDC flew in a botulism antitoxin, right, so you can, there's always these resources. I think the coolest story I've had this was a a patient who was bit by a snake she was pregnant she got bit by a snake her husband killed the snake and brought it to the hospital and we called the local zoo who identified it and helped us come up with an antivenom and you'd be surprised how willing people are to help when you're in the icu so if you have an interesting exposure like this It's great to get people on the phone and then always a plug for if someone has had an intoxication you don't know about. I think poison control is like my favorite resource to always call in the ICU. So Department of Health, CDC, poison control, reach out if you have concerns. Anyway, this patient sounds pretty ill, and the acute worsening. The alternate says, and then a new acute, very concerning finding of slurred speech on the way to the hospital makes me, you know, have my antenna very high up. So why don't you give us a little bit more information, and we can dive into figuring out what they have and what we need to do for them.
2: All right. So first of all, that uh, story about the snake is quite alarming. That's that's very interesting.
1: <laughs> Yeah. If you can kill a snake if it bites you, that's the moral of that story. I don't know how I did that, but yeah.
2: All right. So going back to our patient and giving some more history. So his prior medical history was not that impressive. I mean, he had hypertension, diabetes, some coronary artery disease. His family history, we couldn't really obtain. Uh, the, The wife wasn't really able to provide that. Interestingly, from a social history perspective, he lived on a farm and per family, and they had reported that the neighbors were complaining recently of a rise in ticks, or if I can say an uptick in ticks. Uh, His animal exposure was more so uh, just the chickens in his uh, neighboring farms and he otherwise used to just garden and farm in his own like small farm that he had. His medications were pretty much just the guideline directed therapies for coronary artery disease, some diabetes and hypertension. And he had some uh, Flomax for his BPH, but that's about it. And kind of going back to where we left off. So he presented from this outside hospital with this history and new symptoms of slurred speech. And at that point, when he was at the other hospital, they were primarily concerned of stroke because they're like, what if this is just a stroke? And ended up doing a preliminary stroke workup. So he got a CT head, a brain MRI over there, which were all negative for any concerning findings. And he progressively worsened at the other hospital with this worsening encephalopathy leading to him getting intubated. And within uh, within almost 24 hours of the presentation. And lastly, uh, interestingly, his CT abdomen pelvis was also done over there and showed some signs of acute pancreatitis um, and inflammation. And that's about it.
0: Thanks, part. So, so far we have a history with expired peanut butter, potentially salmonella. We have chicken exposure and potentially chick exposure. So, Definitely interested to see where the case is going to go.
1: Yeah, was this a step one case? Are you sure that?
0: The- <laughs> <laughs> seriousness for this, for this question and for this patient. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was just as worsening encephalopathy and um, altered mental status leading to mechanical intubation. And I think it's important just to go over a common question that trainees and providers experience, you know, a way of approaching patients when you're concerned about their mental status um, or needing airway protection. And Laura, I'm wondering if you can share your framework for how you approach these patients and decide whether or not they need to be intubated.
4: Yeah, of course. That is a great question. And I think it's really easy when the person in front of you is completely unresponsive, your sternal rubbing them, not getting anything. But we've all been in those situations when it's less black and white. And I know in our ICU, we have a ton of liver patients in our hospital. And we've all been called to evaluate these patients on the floor, they have hepatic encephalopathy, and they kind of fall into that gray zone of are they protecting their airway or are they not? So one of the things I look for when assessing airway protection is how well the patient can phonate, how well they can speak, and then whether they can actually swallow their secretions. If they're able to talk to me, even if what they say doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but they're able to clearly say some words, that gives me some reassurance that they're probably protecting their airway reasonably well. If they're not able to phonate, and the nurse has that towel tucked up under their chin to catch all of the oral secretions that's pretty much a sure sign that they are not protecting their airway and we should probably break out that intubation box and go ahead and get them intubated for airway protection um, interestingly i know all of us have learned check the gag reflex shove the ink our way down their throat but really phonation and the ability to manage oral secretions is probably a more reliable indicator than the presence or absence of a gag reflex when you're trying to assess somebody's ability to protect their airway. There are a lot of normal adults with no gag reflex at all, which probably explains how we have those mystery patients in our ICUs who are on no sedation and completely comfortable with that endotracheal tube in place. We had one of those just last week. so something else I consider when deciding whether or not to intubate these patients is also just their expected trajectory. So if I'm evaluating this patient with hepatic encephalopathy, their mental status is maybe borderline, but I can get nrl access ceremonies maybe only in the 80s. I can give them lactulose and maybe get them turned around fairly quickly. I may bring that patient to the ICU and just watch them see if we can't turn them around without subjecting them to being intubated and put on a ventilator. Flip side of that, if their ammonia is over 200, they just got banded for their variceal bleed a couple days ago and I can't get enteral access to give them lactulose. Or if this is somebody who has an active ongoing GI bleed, that's somebody I would just go ahead and intubate for airway protection. Along those same lines of clinical trajectory, if this was somebody who was maybe kind of borderline and we checked the blood gas and they were hypercarbic and had a respiratory acidosis, that would be something else for me. I would just go ahead and intubate them because those are not the patients you want to put on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So many good pearls there. I love the clinical trajectory. It's like, if you know, look, look we're going to do a lot of stuff right now. This patient's going to end up intubated. Might as well take control of the situation, but these are great pearls. So we now end up with our patient who's had this interesting history and is pretty acute presentation uh, with a negative neural workup so far, who's intubated for airway protection and altered mental status. So Maria, I know you're involved in this patient's care. Uh, Can you tell us what happened next?
3: Yeah, so uh, I came in in the morning and this guy had come in overnight And I, you know, at a tertiary center, you get these outside referrals. I feel like there's a wide range of like how these patients come packaged to you. This guy was pretty much as billed, but they had done a pretty good job of stabilizing him. So when he came to us, we weren't really putting out fires so much as actually putting together a good differential and thinking about where to go. He had already been intubated. He had all of his lines. The big things we were worried about when he showed up to us were progressive shock. I think he was already on two pressers at this point. And he was starting to develop a really severe oliguric AKI. So the physical exam, when we saw him, was notable for diaphoresis and some mild distress, even though he had been on the vent and was sedated. He had clonus in just the right upper extremity, but not in the other three. Uh, and he had a little bit of ankle edema and some coarse breath sounds, but he was on a vent. So take that with a grain of salt. Labs were mostly notable for a white count of only 3.6, despite everything that was going on. Uh, the differential on that wasn't very exciting. He was mildly anemic at 11.9 and thrombocytopenic at 33. Chemistry, he was hyponatremic 131 and had a bicarb of 20. And then, as I mentioned, he had an AKI. So BUN was 49, creatinine 3.8 from a baseline of 0.8. AST and ALT were slightly elevated at 325 and 114, but he had a normal Alk, ALKFOS and Billy. And his ABG on 35% FiO2 and otherwise minimal vent support was 7.28, 36, And then as Parth mentioned, he'd had that CT chest, abdomen, pelvis at the outside hospital that showed no real clear signs of infection, but he had a little bit of pancreatic inflammation and a lipase of 78.
0: Thanks so much, Maria, for giving that additional information. And just to summarize for those listening today, right, so it sounds like we have a gentleman in his 60s with a past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, and coronary artery disease, possible exposures to chickens and ticks, as Parth mentioned, as well as contaminated food, who's presenting with one week of progressive lethargy and altered mental status, culminating in slurred speech, who was transferred to your facility with severe encephalopathy with respiratory failure requiring intubation, a multipressor shock pancytopenia with prominent thrombocytopenia, AKI, and transaminitis. So already that's a lot for us to try to put together in our minds and compartmentalize. But in these situations, I'm really thinking about managing the acute pathology and then try to figure out the underlying diagnosis as you mentioned, right? So it sounds like this is a distributive shock picture, but in, um, as I'm sure you did, you know, I think we would all wanna do our own bedside ultrasound and potentially obtain a mixed venous set, specifically if they have a central line. Regarding this patient, as far as etiology, I'm still thinking, infection and sepsis, even with the negative labs so far, most things being common, but I'm going to expand my differential to include other systemic pathologies that could cause this. So with that, I think the notable findings, such as a pancytopenia, the clonus maria, as you mentioned, and the severe AKI, I'd be considering TTP for this patient, CNS process, such as meningitis or infectious encephalitis, or even an autoimmune encephalitis, or, or another systemic inflammatory or malignant process. So I think still keeping it very broad, trying to you know go down uh, what we think is most likely based on his significant lab findings so far.
1: Yeah, And Maria, I think you said it really well. Like you came in overnight, and he the acute management of getting them stabilized seemed to have been done really well by great overnight management. And so now you're getting to take a step back and sort of figure out what's happening here. And and these are always the cases that I would worry about when I was a you know trainee and resident and, and you still have concerns about. And I always tell the residents, like I would make a list of diagnoses that I would get nervous about in the ICU. So like, TTP was very high up there. Like Looks just like sepsis. This guy could easily have it, thrombocytopenia, AKI. I don't want to miss it because you you can't, you have to treat it very quickly and uh, you, you don't want to have any delay in care. And so having broad testing and a broad differential, once you've taken those initial steps, stabilize the airway, you have the shock relatively under control. So, you know, uh, we also in medicine have to act with a lot of incomplete information. So like this guy's going to get a bunch of treatments for an underlying etiology and we don't even know what it is yet, right? And so we want to hone that uh, as much as we possibly can. So in this case where there's not one clear thing that's popping out, it's not like you have gram negative sepsis right away when you come in. I'm sure you guys had a lot of diagnostic thinkings that were going on. So Maria, how about you tell us what was your kind of approach and and what kind of diagnostics did you get?
3: So yeah, I mean, we tried to go through it hitting the basics and just doing things systematically as you often do with a complicated patient. So kind of going head to toe, his biggest problem when he showed up was probably his encephalopathy. So we kind of started over with repeat head imaging in case something had progressed. We got an EEG and an LP. The thing that really stuck out to us, obviously the peanut butter conundrum was sort of weird. But then his history of living on a farm and working in a garden sort of sent us down this ID rabbit hole, which was sort of fun because that's stuff that we don't always get to think about. But so in addition to the standard blood cultures, we sent out a ton of infectious stuff that ended up including HIV, viral hepatitis, anaplasma, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, West Nile, Parvo, CMV, EBV, Ehrlichia, all kinds of fungal stuff. And then, of course, you know, since TTP is on the differential, we did sort of expand our hematology workup. So we ended up getting LDH, hapto, fibrinogen, D-dimer, and an ts 13 as well as iron studies. The things that really stood, be- stood out when those came back were a really high triglyceride number of 500. CK was 2200. LDH was 1700. His D-dimer was close to 7,500 and his ferritin was 67,000. So that kind of made us take a little bit of a step back and look at things. Interestingly, our heme team had already been consulted from the time the patient was at the outside hospital. I'm still not totally sure what the line of communication was there, but their fellow knew that this patient was coming over. And so he had contacted us and asked us to send out a soluble IL-2 receptor, which I remember distinctly because Parth spent probably about an hour trying to find the order in our EMR. So um, we sent that off early and we eventually got it back as being almost three times the upper limit of normal, but that didn't come back for a little bit.
1: So sounds like we're gonna have a lot to discuss. I wanna dive into soluble IL 2 and those findings. But before we go, one part of this fellow's case files that's fun is from different parts of the country you've gotten different, you know, homegrown infectious disease. So when we were talking in Kentucky, they were talking to us about how they like, you know, you have a little histonodule for every patient who comes to the home clinic.
3: Fun fact, there was, there used to be like a grove of trees outside of our cancer center and they had to cut all the trees down because so many patients who were coming in and out to get chemo or immunosuppressed were going under these trees and getting exposed to all these droppings and they were all getting disseminated histo we see it a lot and it's you know it it becomes a problem in the you know cancer hospital but generally speaking everybody has a histo nodule where we practice
0: iatrogenic histo um, i haven't heard of that one before
3: <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. And for uh, Maria, coming back to the patient, it seems like, you know, your, your ICU team and definitely consultant team, it seems like at least team and ID were involved and you really did a, a super thoughtful approach. And as Firth mentioned, we'll get into some of the more lab findings in just a minute. You can never be wrong going with a broad workup um, for these patients. But Laura, as Firth mentioned, you know, we're also left with empiric treatment at this point. And I think we're comfortable managing the shock and the end organ failure. But how do you think about empiric treatment for the possible underlying etiologies that could be exposed? his presentation.
4: Yeah, Antibiotic selection is always a hot topic on ICU rounds, just trying to make sure we're broad enough to cover all of the potential infectious sources that could be there in these really sick patients, but also keeping in mind appropriate antibiotic stewardship and not being too broad and giving people antimicrobials just indiscriminately without putting some thought into it. So things that I specifically keep in mind when considering which antibiotics to start are, I mean, obviously, what do I think could be the source? But then beyond that, what immunosuppressive medications has this patient taken? We get a lot of patients who have had transplants. So they come into us on mycophenolate or chronic prednisone, or we have those lymphoma patients who maybe had their rituximab several months ago, but their B-cells are still very much affected by that B-cell targeted therapy. Are there conditions impacting their defense? So are they severely neutropenic? Is this somebody with structural lung disease that could have a fungus ball or something like that, or bad pseudomonas? Have they had a splenectomy that would put them at risk for those encapsulated organisms? Things along those lines. Do they have devices implanted? Maybe they have a port or a ventricular peritoneal shunt or it's a dialysis patient with a ton of line, things like that, that would be portal sort of infection. And then do we have any known exposures? Do they have any recent travel to an area that has a certain disease process that's endemic? Or as in this case, have they had peanut butter that was maybe contaminated with salmonella? All things that are really helpful to think about when we're trying to figure out what organisms do we need to cover for. So narrowing down that suspected source really kind of helps with antibiotic selection. And this case is a really good example of that. So he's acutely encephalopathic. He's in shock. We don't yet know why he's encephalopathic. Dominella can infrequently cause this. So maybe not number one on my differential, but it's at least something we need to make sure we cover. And when you consider his age and the concern for a possible CNS infection, we need to think about strep pneumoniae, mysteria meningitidis, Listeria. And GNR. So we want to make sure we absolutely cover those. So making sure you get ceftriaxone and not the gram Q24. We need to make sure we do meningitis dosing with our ceftriaxone, vanc to cover any ceftriaxone resistance drop. And then the ampicillin to cover the listeria are all super important and that's why those were chosen. We always want to include ampicillin in patients with suspected meningitis who are over 50. And if you remember this guy's 62, so he definitely falls in that category or if they're pregnant or immunocompromised, just because those are the people at risk for Listeria when you're thinking about those CNS infections. We also wanted to consider HSV encephalitis, so he was started on cyclovir for that. But that's the Daxacycline, I have to confess, I would not have thought about that on my own, but that combination of the potential tick exposure, the hyponatremia, the transaminitis, and the thrombocytopenia made our hematologist really suspicious for ehrlichiosis. So we, that's why the doxycycline was started and we empirically covered that as well while we were waiting on our other test results to come back. Thinking through the other things going on with him, the combination of pancytopenia and encephalitis kind of raises my suspicion for a viral infection. These EBV, CMV, early HIV and parvo are all things that can suppress your bone marrow and cause an encephalitis type picture. I wouldn't necessarily change anything we're doing because of those viruses right now, but it is something to keep in mind going forward.
1: Ah, I love that. And I love how, you know, much is that we know these tests take a long time, but using the information we have, we can make a really thoughtful way we it. And then we can peel stuff off as they come back. And there's really nothing better than when you've already started treating for something, thought about it, and then it goes back positive. And you're like, oh, we're covered because we already thought about this, which is great. We have some really interesting labs, you know, we mentioned before with the ferritin and the LDH, soluble IL-2, which right now is pending for this patient. But with all these infectious exposures, I got to know, you know, what some of these <laughs> infectious things came back at. So Parth, can you tell us about how some of the testing shook out?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for this patient who is encephalopathic, intubated, we ended up doing, as Maria mentioned earlier, the repeat head imaging, brain MRI, along with some CSF studies, EEG. So the imaging overall overall was pretty unremarkable. Uh, nothing really stood out. The EEG, on the other hand, was just being an EEG like all the time, was nonspecific with some moderate to severe generalized <laughs> slowing. Um, the CSF studies, um, as uh, you know we mentioned earlier, it's we were concerned about some uh, autoimmune encephalitis. So we ended up sending out a, men- a meningoencephalitis panel, an autoimmune panel and even added some infectious disease workup to that. And interestingly, everything was unremarkable. His basic CSF labs were also pretty normal. Uh, And notably, though, his pancytopenia continued to worsen. And as Maria mentioned earlier, the labs which were kind of sticking out uh, were the CK of 2200 almost, a triglyceride, of about 598 and that was initially sent because overnight when he came in we were like oh acute pancreatitis what if this is hypertriglyceridemia his ldh was elevated to like 1787 his d dimer was 74 uh, 7400 and the ferritin was about 67000 and it actually continued to trend up the very broad infectious workup that our id colleagues um, recommended us which included all the way from rocky mounted spotted fever to fungal to viral labs was negative except for ebv pcr the quantitative pcr being uh, 7534 international units per ml and drumroll the ehrlichia shafiensis detected on pcr and I think I must add to this that our hematologists were quite anchored on this Ehrlichia, I think because one of, our, uh, one of the attendings had actually seen a case about a month or two earlier of Ehrlichia. And they were like, well, we should also send that, especially with this tick exposure. And lo and behold, it came back positive.
0: Well, Parth, I haven't seen Ehrlichia in uh, definitely a long time and, and not super common. And depending on where you practice, you may never see it. But it, seem, it seems like at least in the last month, um, Indiana has seen at least two cases of it. But I'm, I'm sure, Parth, that you dug into Ehrlichiosis and learned a lot about it. And I'm hoping that you can share that with those listening today.
2: Absolutely. So. Yeah, Ehrlichia is also referred to as uh, human monocytic ehrlichiosis. Uh, It's caused by this uh, intracellular gram-negative species of rickettsialis bacteria. It's primarily endemic to the southeastern, south-central, and mid-Atlantic regions of the U.S. And when I say primarily endemic, it's like about 11 uh, cases per million. The primary vector for this is the infamous uh, lone star tick. And it's primarily, uh, it primarily resides in the white-tailed deer, which is the reservoir for this tick. Uh, Interestingly, though, there are cases of Ehrlichia being transmitted via blood transfusions. The patients generally present with some nonspecific symptoms, quite often, as was the case in our patient. They have fever, some malaise, headache, and chills, along with some GI symptoms. And as we, as you recall, like, our patient had some fever, some malaise, also diarrhea was there. And they sometimes, patients with ehrlichiosis uh, also present with a rash, and often that uh, shows up about five days after the initial onset of fevers. And only 20% of these patients have neurologic symptoms. And the lab findings are primarily leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, and some elevated LFTs. And as far as diagnosing ehrlichiosis goes, it's through PCR, serology, or a blood smear. If you, are, if you have a microscope handy, you could uh, find some morulae in the monocytes. And the treatment, like most of the tick-borne illnesses, is doxycycline. And lastly, the fatality for ehrlichiosis is about 3%. So I think early treatment is quite important in the case of ehrlichiosis.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like in this case, it was great. You had early treatment because somebody was suspicious about it up front. So, you know, uh, kudos to that person. You know, and I think that's just a very cool aspect of this case is that uh, lots of exposures. This was even a new one. and, uh, And you can have the coverage right when they got to your ICU. There are still some questions, right, at this case, because there are still some odd features here, right? And so, you know, when you have a very sick patient like this, you sort of hone in on the most atypical features. You know, so one, we have this EBV-PCR. These are always tricky, right? Like, this is not that atypical. We see sometimes EBV-PCRs coming back in the ICU. In certain populations, they can really make us think about lymphomas. So, like, your post-transplant populations, we can think about whether or not they have PTLD. Uh, We also think about acute EBV infection in patients who have symptoms like mononucleosis. So those are rarely these really septic ICU patients. And then we start raising the specter of uh, HLH, right, or hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, because we know EBV is one of the most common triggers for that. And then you mentioned the hyperferritinemia, right? And so hyperferritinemia is another thing that we see commonly in the ICU. Um, Most of the time, it's secondary to just inflammatory diseases, you, know, you can get a transferrin saturation and first make sure it's not from iron overload because patients who just have hemochromatosis or lots of transfusions can have a high one. But then the higher the ferritin gets and the more it's climbing, the more that secondary diseases like sepsis and secondary to infections start going down on the differential and diseases like HLH, Still's disease, macrocyte activation syndrome start going up on the differential. They're all still rare, so the overall is that they're still going to be rare, but there's some things we have to consider. Um, And then, Maria, you mentioned the soluble IL-2, so uh, it sounds like people were thinking about HLH, and I'm just curious if you can tell us a little bit more about it and when we should suspect it.
3: Yeah, so I think what tipped off the hematologist was the ferritin of 67,000. HLH to me has always been one of those things that like as an intern you hear about it and then every single time you see a high ferritin you freak out and then the heme fellows are really kind of annoyed with you it's I mean HLH is exceedingly rare. But when you see a ferritin of 67,000, it is something that you should think about. Luckily, there is something called an H-score, and I really like these types of scoring things because they they sort of check your own thinking and get you to calm down sometimes when you've anchored on something and you're running away with it. But if you look up the H-score, it's available on MDCalc, and it takes you some of the common signs, symptoms, and lab features that would go into an HLH diagnosis. So the score is based on immunosuppression, body temperature, presence of organomegaly, cytopenias, ferritin, triglycerides, fibrinogen, AST, and a bone marrow biopsy. So our patient, when we calculated everything without the bone marrow biopsy, he had a score of 200, which was an 80 to 88% probability of HLH. So just by doing that, you know, we were already sort of honed in. So the soluble IL-2 is a pretty interesting lab. It's like most things, I think, in HLH, it's been studied more in a pediatric population than adults. But it's basically sort of a surrogate for T-cell activation or activity. Um, So a high value can be really sensitive for HLH. It's close to 88%, but it's not that specific of a lab. And there does seem to be some evidence that if you trend it, it can give you a good dynamic measurement of disease progression. So because our trusty heme fellow had told us to check it early and Parth had finally figured out how to order it, uh, we did have it to go off. And I think we ended up trending it as well. The other thing to note, I think when you're thinking of HLH or you're entertaining it on your differential, is that there's usually a trigger. And it's almost... A third, a third, a third between like viral infection, non-viral infection, and malignancy. EBV, as you mentioned, is the most common. And our we were almost led astray because the EBV titer came back positive, but the the level itself wasn't very high, so Heme wasn't too excited about that being the primary driver. But always, you know, if you're suspecting HLH, you need to dig d- deeper and think about what else might be going on.
0: Thanks, Maria. That was some really great teaching points that you brought out. And I really love your a third, a third, a third rule uh, for thinking about etiologies. You know, and I think, as you said, HLH is rare, but something that as um, intensivists and ICU doctors, we need to be on the lookout for, since it can masquerade as other diagnosis and can be caused by many infections that we typically see. You know, it also has a very high mortality rate, unfortunately. And for treatment wise, you know, it'd be interesting to know what happened to this patient specifically, but treatments based on protocols dating back to the early 2000s, thousands. And one, the mainstay is kind of treating the underlying cause. And the second is a combination of dexamethasone, atopicide, and potentially cyclosporin. You know, other modifications that I've seen in the past have been including IVIG. I have read about it, but haven't personally given intrathecal methotrexate as well as rituximab. But given this part, how did the patient do?
2: Yeah, so, you know, he ended up receiving um Etoposide, uh, dexamethasone, and rituximab. He also got some IVIG as well. He didn't end up getting any intrathecal methotrexate or cyclosporin. However, he was actually supposed to be scheduled to start cyclosporin treatment as well. So. Um, luckily with initiation of treatment he started recovering pretty rapidly and from a standpoint of encephalopathy the whole reason why he was intubated he improved at about day eight from the initial intubation and was successfully extubated he had some persistent weakness that was present for a few days and he started working with ptot was able to actually give us more history about what happened and he actually told us that he had a tick bite about two weeks prior to him having all these symptoms in, on his, like, hip area. And that kind of reassured us that, okay, why the tick was, uh, why the ehrlichiosis was positive. The right upper extremity colonus was uh, eventually resolved. And from an AKI standpoint, he was, conti- he was on CVVH and was eventually tran- uh, transitioned to intermittent hemodialysis. His biomarkers continued to improve, and he was transferred out of the ICU a day or two after the initial extubation. Uh, He remained on the floor where he continued to get the treatment for HLH, actually, and he was pretty stable until about two weeks later. So he had recurrence. uh, Sadly, he had recurrence of the progressive encephalopathy, and he went into septic shock, which turned out to be pretty rapid to the point that a um, uh, rapid response was called, and two weeks after that transfer to the floor, he ended up getting readmitted to the ICU. And unfortunately, his uh, shock was so uh, rapidly progressing, uh, and because of this immunocompromised status, he, we weren't able to help him, much, help him out much, despite uh, very aggressive treatment. And unfortunately, he passed after a two-day stay in the ICU.
1: Yeah, that's unfortunate. It's a, you know, unfortunately, this is where that HLH mortality, which is very high that Christina mentioned, you know, is not always in that acute. Really, they're looking over the first, you know, months and six months of treatment. And, you know, the treatment they get is very aggressive. It makes them prone to other infections. They often have multi-system organ dysfunction. And so uh, this can unfortunately be the case uh, often. But it does sound like, you know, he got the best effort he could and, and the extra time, hopefully, he was uh, able to have some time with his family. Well, this was an incredible case, Um, you know, lots of very, very interesting learning points that we're going to dive into, but we'd also just love to talk about Indiana.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I have not had the, the honor or privilege of visiting uh, the great state of Indiana or Indiana University so far. But as Fer has said before, we hope to make a Pulm Peeps road trip to all our case files. So hopefully we make it out there one day. But those listening today, um, I'd really love for y'all to share something great about the program and about, about the location. So Laura, I'm going to start with you. What do you want to share and what do you want listeners to know about Indiana University and specifically Pulmonary Critical care Fellowship there?
4: I think my very favorite thing about the program and when people ask me why I have stayed here as long as I have it's honestly the people our division is very much a family and our fellows are an extremely important part of that. Um, Just from a program perspective, one of the really cool things about our program is that we don't take a one size fits all approach to our trainees. And we're really able to customize a fellow experience to help them use fellowship as a launching pad for whatever direction they ultimately want their career to take, whether that's in research or as a top-notch clinician or a medical educator.
0: That's awesome, Laura, and excited for you to take over SPD in just a few months. Parth, what about you? What can you tell us um, about the residency program and the aspects that you like about Indiana?
2: You know uh so my primary reason for coming to indiana was like oh well i want to stay in the midwest and i ended up falling in love with uh, my residency program clearly so much so that i am doing an extra year to be one of the chiefs and you know at one point uh, when i was coming to indiana i was like oh i want to do cardiology but after working with you know the phenomenal staff like dr hinkle fellows like maria I at the the I clearly changed my mind and I've decided I'm going to apply to pump cred this upcoming cycle so I'm clearly looking forward to
3: it. We got one. Woo.
1: That's great. We have a we have an upcoming collaboration with Cardio Nerd, so we won't talk too much junk on cardiologists but we're happy that you're applying in pump <laughs>
0: I know that that hour part that you spent looking up that IL-2 receptor is going to pay back. So (laughs) this this is this this is your prelim interview. Um, uh, But uh, no, just joking. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. That's exciting to hear. And Maria, I definitely want to hear from you as well as a current fellow. What do you love about Indiana
3: University? Uh, It's kind of easy for me. I'm I'm a Hoosier by birth. But uh, as Laura mentioned, the thing that really I think drives this division is that the people here are really great to work with and really do function as a family. The other thing that I love about IU is we are really kind of leading the way in a lot of global health stuff. That's where my passion is. I'm going to be spending a lot of time next year in Kenya doing a lot of work with sepsis outcomes, but we, IU started AMPATH, which is one of the best programs for academic partnerships in global health. And I started going as a med student and I've gone back now four times and it's thing that's very near and dear to my heart. So I'm really happy and excited to be part of IU and part of that affiliation.
1: That's amazing. I'd love to hear more about that. That's very cool. Well, this are great uh, last 45 minutes. We always like to wrap up our cases with a learning or a takeaway point from everyone. Um, a lot of great ones in this case. Uh, I I'll do something, Laura, that you said with the thing about intubation. It's just about sort of like the, the really practical and functional assessment of airway protection. It's like, how are they phonating? How are they expressing themselves? You know, ramming a yank hour down their throat may not tell you less than <laughs> uh, just asking a few questions. And that's a really, uh, I think, good bedside technique for it. Christina, anything that you're taking away?
0: Yeah, I was actually going to take Laura's intubation as well. I think just thinking about the trajectory, as you mentioned, was so important. Sometimes things that we forget. But I think in general, just kind of what Maria and Parth brought up just when you're thinking broad about a differential, you know, sometimes what you see, depending on where you're at um, in, in the nation or where people have traveled can help kind of broaden your differential based on location. I like it. Laura?
4: so i think my takeaway point on this is to not for everyone but in the right setting to consider ehrlichiosis i don't know that i myself would have put together the neurologic symptoms hyponatremia thrombocytopenia and transaminitis is pointing that direction we see all of those things together so often in the icu but i think my takeaway is to at least um do a little bit digging when i'm doing my history and just ask any tick exposures And just, just because that could potentially change what I cover up front and alter my empiric antibiotics.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take that one as well, for sure. Parth? Yeah. So, you know, uh, from a resident standpoint, I think the big thing I want uh, other residents and including uh, several of my colleagues and all of us to take is that not to fixate an anchor on a diagnosis at should, as it should be in most of the cases and how, you know, getting a thorough history is pretty important. Like clearly in this patient, getting a social history would have, it was important in order to uh, uh, understand that, oh, there was some tick exposure. And then lastly, uh, you know, as residents, we are always like quite often the first people to like start chart diving first thing in the morning as we come in and monitoring these immunocompromised patients closely is important. Like any red flags and getting, you know, help from you know, the fellows, the attendings there to keep a close eye on these patients uh, just to prevent from, um, you know, prevent them from decompensating rapidly.
3: Yeah,
1: absolutely. And Maria, we'll wrap up with you.
3: Yeah, I think the cool part about this case is that we thought we had a diagnosis but that wasn't the full story. So like just getting the ehrlichia part of it didn't explain all of the symptoms. So, you know, I think we do things that we see more commonly like you can apply this probably to like a DKA patient. Like most people go into DKA for a reason and we often stop the diagnostic workup once we realize that the patient's in DKA. But if you don't really ask more questions and dig deeper, you could miss some stuff. So This was a cool case to just remind you that, yeah, this guy had this weird tick-borne thing, but then he also developed what ended up killing him was the HLH. We didn't catch it, but um, yeah, that's not always the full story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think I started this episode by talking about bias, and momentum bias is my uh, most dreaded one in the ICU. It's like, we know this diagnosis, we're treating it, and that's what it is, and then nobody rethinks and revisits that patient again. So that's a really great takeaway point. Well, thank you all for coming on. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode. This uh, episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. The Music's original music by Eric Rogers. And we'll see you next time.